Hello everyone and welcome to the October 15th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I am John Castro with the Law Offices of Floyd Scarron in the capacity of a hearing representative. Thanks for joining us today. Now let's get started with our litigation report. The Department of Justice is requiring CVS Health Corporation and Aetna to divest Aetna's Medicare Part D prescription drug plan in order to proceed with their $69, million, I'm sorry, $69 billion merger. The divestiture will go to a WellCare Health Plans and experienced healthcare insurers focused on government-sponsored health plans and would fully resolve the department's competitive concerns. The department's antitrust division, along with the offices of five state attorney generals, filed a civil antitrust lawsuit in joining the proposed transaction. Along with the proposed settlement, that, if approved by the court, would fully resolve the department's competitive concerns. The participating state attorney general offices represent California, Florida, Hawaii, Mississippi, and Washington. CVS is the nation's largest retail pharmacy chain, and Aetna is the nation's third largest health insurance company. Both are significant competitors in the sale of Medicare Part D prescription drug plans to individuals, together serving 6.8 million members nationwide. The combination of CVS and Aetna would cause anti-competitive effects including increased prices, inferior customer service, and decreased innovation in 16 Medicare Part D regions covering 22 states. Under the terms of the proposed settlement, Aetna must divest its individual prescription drug plan business to WellCare and allow WellCare the opportunity to hire key employees who currently operate the business. Aetna must also assist WellCare in operating the business during the transition and transferring the affected customers through a process regulated by Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. As required by the Tony Act, the proposed consent decree, along with the Department's competitive impact statement, will be published in the Federal Registrar. Howard William Neal was a mobile driver for Elite Security when his car was hit while he was pumping gas in 2009. He made numerous false statements regarding his injuries and what caused them to several doctors. As a result, Neal was found guilty by jury of six counts of insurance fraud. The jury court suspended imposition of sentence and placed him on a three-year term of formal probation. His probation order required him to maintain his residence as approved by the probation officer and not to change his residence without prior written approval. He was also prohibited from leaving California without written permission. But Neal appealed the probation order requirement to maintain his residence as approved by the probation officer and not change his residence without written approval, claiming it was unconstitutionally overbroad and impermissibly restricts his right to travel. Neal relied on a 1989 case of People v. Bauer, where the first appellate court district found a probation conduct that required the defendant to obtain the probation officer's approval of his residence to be unconstitutional. The Bauer court found the condition to be disturbing because it impinges on constitutional entitlements, the rights to travel, and freedom of association. This condition should instead be narrowly tailored to interfere as little as possible with these important rights. The Supreme Court noted in the 2008 case of People v. Olkeen that even if a condition of probation 
has no relationship to the crime of which a defendant was convicted and involves conduct that is not itself criminal, the condition is invalid as long as the condition is reasonably related to preventing future criminality. The condition in Oking required the probationer to notify and inform the probation officer not to obtain prior permission and approval. The Court of Appeal agreed with Mr. Neal's arguments in the unpublished case of People v. Neal and the matter was remanded to the trial court with directions to either strike these provisions or to revisit it in a manner consistent with the opinion. And now, our crime report. A Riverside County jury has convicted a doctor for his four-year scheme of defrauding workers' compensation insurance companies by billing them $90,000 for unneeded medical legal reports. And he lied when he claimed he was a QME after his QME status had expired. 87-year-old Benjamin Gould Cox was convicted of seven counts of insurance fraud and seven counts of perjury for lying to the California Medical Board while he was on disciplinary probation. Cox is scheduled to be sentenced on November 13th and could face up to 18 years in state prison when he is sentenced. Cox has been practicing medicine since the early 1960s and has been previously disciplined for professional violations. The medical board placed him on probation in 2013 and restricted his practice because of instances where he had failed to appropriately diagnose and establish treatment plans for a number of patients. Cox completed his probation in 2016, but the California Department of Industrial Relations informed the Riverside County District Attorney's insurance fraud team that Dr. Cox was billing for fraudulent medical legal reports. Even though Dr. Cox was not a QME and there were no disputes that required a medical legal report, he nonetheless billed Berkshire Hathaway, Hartford, Liberty Mutual, the State Fund, Zenith Insurance, Zurich Insurance, the Employer's Insurance for more than $90,000 in medical legal reports. And Cox perjured himself in medical board disciplinary probation reports regarding his status as a QME. The medical board required Dr. Cox to provide quarterly statements to ensure that he was complying with his terms of probation. For years after his QME certificate expired, Dr. Cox wrote that he was a qualified medical evaluator in his quarterly reports. Cox remains free on $30,000 bail. Suspected drug dealer Trayvon Lucas was indicted by a federal grand jury for distributing fentanyl that caused the death of a La Jolla residence. Evidence obtained from the victim's cellular phone and a parking lot surveillance camera indicate he met Lucas to purchase prescription oxycodone pills the night before his mother found his body. Investigators recovered counterfeit oxycodone pills that contain fentanyl from the decedent's residence and the medical examiner has since identified fentanyl intoxication as the cause of death. Three others were also indicted for their role in an ongoing conspiracy to distribute pharmaceutical pills containing hydrocodone. The defendant posted advertisements on a well-known website to illegally sell prescription pills. Prosecutors say fentanyl is claiming record numbers of victims, most of whom don't even know that they're swallowing a pill that's laced with the deadly drug. There is a dangerous trend of drug dealing and cartels cutting various drugs with fentanyl, which is a recipe for death. Even a tiny amount of fentanyl can be deadly. 
They also warned that unless you buy your prescription pills from a legitimate pharmacy, it's very likely you'll get fake prescription pills laced with the deadly fentanyl. Lucas is the fifth person since January to be charged in the Southern District of California with distributing of fentanyl resulting in death. 32-year-old Daniel Ayala of Consula was sentenced to 365 days of county jail, five years felony probation, and an $890 fine. He pled no contest to one count of felony workers' compensation insurance fraud. Ayala's remaining felony counts were dismissed. His county jail time is stayed pending successful completion of probation and a monthly restitution payment of $350 per month to fulfill his court-ordered restitution of nearly $20,000. Ayala claimed he was injured while working for Greenwood Dairy in Orlando, California in 2014. Ayala was diagnosed with cervical strain and disc herniation and received nearly $16,000 in workers' compensation benefits. Zenith Insurance contracted a private investigator who recorded Ayala performing activities and tasks not consistent with his reported injuries and his clinical symptoms. Ayala intentionally misrepresented his industrial injury in order to obtain workers' compensation benefits that he would not otherwise be entitled to. And in regulatory news, this year, NCCI tracked more than 800 state and federal workers' compensation-related bills and monitored almost 200 workers' compensation-related regulations. Here are the key areas of legislative interest for the coming months. Legislative impacting workers' compensation coverage for first responders continue to be a hot topic with more than 100 bills. The bills address compensability for certain cancers and other diseases as well as compensability for post-traumatic stress disorder. At least 25 states considered legislation to legalize marijuana for medical and or recreational purposes this year. However, only a few states including Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Vermont enacted laws. At this time, there are nine states plus the District of Columbia that have legalized the recreational use of marijuana, and three states, Idaho, Kansas, and Nebraska, that have not legalized mar marijuana in any form. Almost every state introduced legislation related to prescription drugs, and about 20 states considered legislation addressing prescription drugs in workers' compensation. Arizona and Hawaii passed legislation this session to address the use of opioids in workers' compensation. Nine states consider legislation defining the term marketplace contractor to classify certain on-demand workers as independent contractors. Five of those states, Florida, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, and Tennessee, passed legislation in 2018. The circumstances under which California business may classify workers as independent contractors rather than employees under California wage laws have been greatly narrowed by a decision in the California Supreme Court last April. The landmark decision in the Dynamax case presumes that all workers are employees and sets out a new three-part ABC test business must satisfy in order to classify workers as independent contractors. There is pending federal legislation which is intended to preserve state authority to regulate network participation, reimburse and balance billing of air carriers providing air ambulance services. Currently, the Federal Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 has been found 
by some jurisdictions to preempt state regulations of air ambulance fees, including California. SB 880, which became law this summer, would authorize an employer to deposit disability indemnity payment for the employee in a prepaid card account. This seemed like a new and novel idea. Unbeknownst to most of the industry, prepaid debit cards have been approved to pay workers' compensation benefits in California for nine years. It is certainly not a new concept here. Last April, the California State Fund let InsureCard know that SB 880 had been introduced in the California legislature to allow debit cards as a method of payment for workers' compensation claims. The bill at the time would have established a five-year pilot program at the state fund. If the pilot was successful, the program would then be expanded beyond the state fund to other companies. InsureCard's president was surprised to hear this news since his company has been using debit cards for workers' compensation payments in California for nine years. InsureCard received detailed written approval from the workers' compensation director in 2008 and has offered the debit card in California since then. The director affirmed that InsureCard's prior approvals would continue to be honored and he recognized that no complaints have been received by the state in the nine years that InsureCard has offered its debit card for workers' compensation. InsureCard will continue to offer the program in California one of the 44 states where it does business. After InsureCard met with the state, the California legislature changed the bill to allow all payers to use debit cards when the bill takes effect in January of 2019. InsureCard's total payment solution pays workers' compensation benefits to both claimants and healthcare providers with two network branded cards. Both products have been praised by the industry for making electronic payments simpler, faster and secure. Coventry recently announced the release of the fourth part of its 2017 Drug Trend Series. The fourth installment is dedicated to topical specialty medications and regulatory developments. Topicals and specialty drugs account for 17.9% of total aggregate costs, thus warranting increased attention. Topicals are being prescribed as an alternative to, to some oral medications. However, however, the lack of clinical efficacy and exorbitant pricing eliminates them as a favorable first-line therapy option. While they are declining in the managed environment due to utilization controls, they continue to increase in the unmanaged space. Specialty medications are typically used to treat patients with complex, chronic conditions and it become a problem in the workers' compensation due to their significant costs. Although they represent approximately 1% of drug utilizations, they account for nearly 5% of prescription drug costs. With regard to managed topical medications, cost per claim has decreased modestly. Utilization has fallen by at least 6% per year over the last two years, but cost per script has increased for the last three years. Unmanaged topical medications have not done as well. Cost per claim, utilization, and cost per script has increased. Managed specialty medications have shown 7-8% increases in cost per claims per year, while cost per script has experienced a three-year downward trend influenced by declining use of hepatitis C medications. And in medical news, when it comes to non-drug therapies for back pain, 
A new study claims that U.S. insurance plans vary widely in what they will cover. And the investigators say private and public insurers are missing important opportunities to promote alternatives to opioids. In fact, researchers found insurers often provide little or no coverage for evidence-backed interventions for chronic pain such as acupuncture and psychological counseling. The authors examined the 2017 versions of 45 insurance plans, 15 Medicaid, 15 Medicare Advantage, and 15 major commercial plans to see what non-drug treatments for low back pain were covered. Nearly all of the plans covered physical and occupational therapy, but despite evidence in the literature to support use of acupuncture, 30 of the 45 plans explicitly did not cover it. Of the 15 Medicaid plans, just three covered psychological interventions for chronic pain, and the therapeutic massage was almost never covered. Now, while certain types of non-drug therapies were covered by most policies, some insurers had steep co-pays. Even in the case of physical therapy, a well-established treatment for low back pain, the researchers found barriers to use. Some plans covered two visits, some covered six, some 12, and some allowed patients to refer themselves for physical therapy, while others required referral by a doctor. Ultimately, it can be easier for a doctor to just prescribe a medication such as an opioid. The new study underscores a very relevant problem given the public health crisis we're in now. Low back pain is the second most common reason for primary care visits. Over the last several years, more effective treatments were included in the undated guidelines released by the American College of Physicians. But insurers have been slow to adopt their policy coverage to reflect that information. The FDA announced its in-house assessment of Trevina's new plan med, which is not looking very good for the biotech company. In an assessment of the drug's efficacy and safety, morphine often produced better pain relief for the target patient population. The biotech-proposed opioid also has high abuse potential raising a red flag for analysts who have watched lawmakers and the FDA organize a nationwide campaign against opioid abuse. The FDA called out the drug for causing adverse events including hepatic adverse events and QT prolongation. There have long been questions circulating about this drug, their data, and the company as a whole since early 2017 when the analysts first started questioning the phase 3 results and the way it stacked up against morphine. The company was forced to undergo a painful restructuring and the CEO officially stepped down at the beginning of this month. Trevina appears to have fallen well short of the guide of grade needed to win over outside experts and it seems that Trevina is fighting an uphill battle. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website for daily news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm John Castro with the Law Offices of Floyd Scarron in the capacity of hearing representative. And thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.